Good morning, everybody. We want to start off by inviting our children up through third grade to Children's Church. If you want to meet your teacher in the back. While they're going, uh, let's start with a word of prayer. Lord, it was our sincere prayer that you would give us Jesus in the morning when we rise, when we're alone, and when we come to die. Lord, that's our only hope. And so, um, Father, I pray that through our message uh, this morning that you would train us that you would remind us that if we have Christ, we have everything. Thank you for your holy word. Speak through it to us this morning. Holy Spirit, open our hearts and minds, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. So we finished Luke, and um, you remember Luke was about being disciples, how to, how to be disciples. What do you do to become a disciple? Um, and we learned a bunch of different discipleship principles, is what I call them, these things that, that we were called to do as disciples. And for example, one of them was from Zacchaeus. Remember, Zacchaeus was a wee little man, and a wee little man was he, and he went up in a tree. And, and if you remember the discipleship principles I brought out of that, I said that we had to have a childlike anticipation of Jesus. We, we had to have humility. Zacchaeus went up a tree. He's a dignified gentleman. He went up a tree. You have to have humility. We, we needed to grow in joyfully receiving Christ, not just into the guest room, but the whole house. And then finally, we need to be full once we've received Jesus and therefore generous. So those were the discipleship principles we brought out of that. And when I preached through Luke, I tried to make sure that we didn't just say, here's the principle, now go out and do it. But I tried to make sure that I brought forward, this is what would power us. This is what would enable us to go do those things. Um, so how are you doing? Yeah, me too. What I thought would be really helpful after a, a, a two-year study in how to be a better disciple would be a series on how does God make us better disciples. So that's what this series, this, this November, we're going to look at these patterns of grace that God puts into our life so that we can be better disciples. How do we grow in those things? So um, as we focus on this, we're going to, I want to set up the series this morning and then talk about worship as one of the patterns. Um, so how do, we, how do we then grow as a disciple? We all know, and I mean, 500th anniversary of the Reformation, you guys know the, the drill. We are saved by faith alone, or by grace alone, through faith alone, because of Christ alone, right? So we're saved by grace, through faith, and that's it. After you're saved, then what? After you're saved, do you then really work hard to be a good person? I think that's the question is, all right, so now I've put my hope in him. Now, how do I grow in Christ? And, and what does it mean to be a disciple? Where am I going with this? Um, so where are we going with this? We read this morning from um, Romans 8. And the, the thing that I thought was stood out right in the middle of it is for those he, uh, verse 29, for those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. So you're saved by grace through faith, and then what happens after your salvation is God is working to conform you to the image of his son. So we become, the idea is as we are following our master, Jesus is our master, we are his disciples. As we're following him, we become more like him. That's the goal of it. So it, older, folk, older folks, my age folks, we're not old. 
You remember in the 1970s, uh, the TV series Kung Fu? And, and it started with this young boy was in a, um, a Chinese monastery, and the um, monk would hold out a pebble in his hand and say, snatch the pebble from my hand. And when the kid would reach for it, he'd never get it. And he says, when you are able to snatch the pebble from my hand, then you may leave. And the idea was that this young boy was to grow up to be like his master so that he could snatch the pebble from his master's hand. Um, I don't know how that makes him a better person, but you know, if you're into snatching pebbles, that's kind of the thing. So the idea is when you're a disciple of somebody, the idea is you become like that person who is your master, who's teaching you. You grow to be like that. So we are disciples of Jesus Christ. So the, the point that God has in our lives is he wants us to be conformed to the image of his son. As we're growing, we're not just becoming nice people. We are becoming more like Christ as we go. That's, that's the hope. That's the point of where we're going. And the good news in all of this is, in verse 29, he says, he predestined us to be conformed to the image of his son. So this is not something God thought, well, hopefully this will happen. This was his plan all along. When he saved you, he said, my goal for you is to conform you now to the image of my son. I want you to grow in that. So then that's our goal. That's what we're doing as disciples is we're trying to become more like Christ. How do we do it? Do we do it by really trying hard, by working really super tough, by, by, by struggling to get through it? Well, actually, we're not left to guess on that. Fortunately, Paul has written to us in Titus chapter 2, in verse 11, listen to what he says. He says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people, or bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. So do you catch the connection there? God's grace has appeared. God's grace has appeared, bringing salvation. You are saved by grace. But what then does it do? His grace has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us. That same grace that saved you, after you're saved, now trains you. And it trains you to renounce ungodliness and worldly possession or worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. The grace by which you are saved is the same grace that will conform you to the image of Christ. So how are you brought to Jesus Christ? By grace. It's only by God's grace. And that's tremendous news. That is really great news because it's in God's hands. He has done it. He will do it. So I've used the word grace a number of times. What does grace mean? The Greek word is charis. Um, it, it means in its you know, basic idea, it's favor. Um, if you're from a Reformed kind of tradition, you will have heard grace is God's unmerited favor. Does that sound familiar? I looked. It's not in any of the creeds and confessions stated that way. It's in all the commentaries on the creeds and confessions. <laughs> And it's not a bad answer, but in modern terms, doesn't it sound like God's a good tipper? His unmerited favor? Well, you didn't really deserve a big tip at the table, but I'll give it to you anyway because I'm a nice guy. The other one, if you're from a more uh, like typical evangelical background, you've probably heard God's riches 
at Christ's expense. It's an acronym, GRACE. Um, that one is not bad. There's a problem with it, though. When do we get God's riches at Christ's expense? We get that in the ultimate salvation, when we're in the new heavens and the new earth, when sin has been set aside, then we receive all that God has had for us. So it's not bad, but I don't know that it's grace. So it kind of leaves us with that first definition, God's unmerited favor. Now, we've got to avoid the idea that God's just a big tipper. We've got to get to what's behind that. So let's take a look at it. It's God's unmerited favor. Like I said, charis at its root means favor. So when, when it says it's God's unmerited favor to us, what favor means is God has set his good intentions on us to do good by us. It, it's his positive disposition to us. He wants to be positive to us. He wants to be good to us. He wants to overflow to us. It's his favor. Now, you can think at that point, well, how do you, how do you get your dad's favor? Well, I mow the lawn on time or take the trash out or, you know, do these things. And then God, you know, then dad's really happy with me because I'm doing these things. And now he's going to be favorable towards me. Well, that's where the, the, the um, tradition that says it's unmerited favor comes in. It's unmerited. You were saved by grace. What did you do to be worthy of being saved? You, you were a born sinner. You didn't do something so that God would look over and go, oh, that's a nice person. I think I'll save one of those. I need one of those in my collection. How will I ever get by without one of those? He looked at you and without any merit in you, not seeing anything that you would do that would be beneficial, he said, I have fixed my love on this person. It is unmerited favor, unmerited love. It, you didn't earn it. So grace is unmerited favor. And then finally, it's God's unmerited favor. God has done this. He has, before the foundations of the world, predestined you to be conformed to the image of his son. He has said, I am going to do this thing in this person for no reason that's in them, simply because I want to do it in them. So grace is, it's not bad to say God's unmerited favor, but we have to understand what is involved in that. It's timeless. It's predestined before the foundations of the world. It is overflowing grace from the greatest being that ever existed, that ever could exist, fixed on me, a speck of dust. That's grace. That is God's unmerited favor. It's huge. So we have to make sure that we understand what grace is, is it is God's unmerited favor. So we grow. That grace that saves us then trains us and leads us to be more like Christ. It, it, it causes us to, to grow in conformity to the image of the Son. So how do we do that? Do we just sit back and go, well, I'm, God's in control. I'm just going to sit here and wait. If I don't do anything, God will have to do all the work. That sounds really wonderful. That's absolutely wrong. Because in 2 Peter 3.18, Peter commands us. This is an imperative. This is a direct command. You must do this. Peter says, but grow in grace. You must grow in grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So, friends, we don't have a choice. We must grow in God's unmerited favor. It is his purpose. It's his plan in our life. So if it's unmerited, how are we supposed to grow in it? How can we command, be commanded to do something that's, that's not within our, our power to do? Well, there are things that we can do that will attract God's grace to us. 
There, there are dispositions we can have. So both in James 4, 6 and 1 Peter 5, we receive the command or we receive the, 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 um, the statement, God opposes the proud, but how does that end? Gives grace to the humble. So if you want to grow in God's grace, the first thing you have to do is not be proud because God's going to oppose you if you're proud. The way you do it is you grow in humility. Because if you're humble, that's the person that God looks to. That's the person he says, ah, I'm going to pour out more of my favor on this person. So the first thing we have to do is we have to be humble. And this is the clue. This is the key that's going to get us to the point where we go, I have to grow in grace, but it's nothing I can do. This is the first clue. Is we have to be humble. And you remember how we defined humble. Humble is not being milk toast. It's not being, you know, I would never disagree with anyone. Moses is called the most humble man on the earth, and boy, was he fiery. Jesus is said to be humble. He humbled himself on the cross, and yet he overturned tables and, and told Pharisees they were whitewashed tombs full of dead men's bones. So then humility must be something other than just being milk toast. What humility is, is understanding ourselves rightly before who God is. We stand before God and we know who we are. So Jesus stands before his father and knows his role. He knows who he is. He has the authority to turn over tables because he is the son of God. We stand before God and we say, I know who I am. I am a sinner saved by grace. So when I come to this issue of growing in grace, I understand it's not because I am so wonderful. It's not because I am such a, a tremendous treasure that God just couldn't pass on this one, like at a yard sale or something. So we have to know who we are because Jesus told us who we are. He told us the ways in which we can grow in grace. So when we went through the Gospel of Luke, it wasn't a waste of time looking at all those discipleship principles. These are things that you need to be doing. You need to be humble. You need to joyfully receive Jesus. You have to be full of who he is to be overflowing and generous. So what do you do? Just ball up your hands and go, I'm going to be humble. Here I am being humble. Look at how generous I am. You, it, it can't be done that way. It's not do these things and you will be receive grace. It is the people, who in, the people in whom these traits exist are the ones who receive more grace and then grow in that and are conformed more and more and more to the image of Christ. So, all right, help me out of this. <laughs> I've said you can't do anything, but you got to do something. How do we do this? Well, the problem isn't um, that we don't have enough knowledge, right? Have you ever heard of a discipleship program? You're going to go through this discipleship program, and we're going to study for 12 weeks together. We're going to look at these 12 doctrines, and at the end, I'm going to give you a nice certificate that says you are a disciple. And then you're going to go out, and you're going to do the same thing for two other people. And that is our new discipleship program because you covered these 12 uh, doctrines. How do you do after that? Usually what you find out is either now I'm proud because I know these doctrines or now I'm crushed because I know these doctrines and I'm not doing it. So how do we get there? How do we grow in those things? Well, I'm reading a book right now by James K.A. Smith um, called You Are What You Love. And Smith is a philosopher. I think he teaches, if I remember right, at Calvin. 
And what he says in this book is nothing that I haven't heard or thought of before, but he puts it in very helpful ways. He says the problem with taking that approach to discipleship, where you learn these doctrines, is it never addresses the heart. It never gets down to what you love, your passions, your desires. What is it that you really love? If you're humble, what you really love is God, and you want him, and you're going to trust him. If you're not humble, if you're proud, what you really love is you. So the problem isn't, do I have to know the right things to be humble? The problem is, do I love the right things to be humble? So that's, that's Smith's point in his book is, you are what you love. What your passions are is where you go. There are so many scriptures that just back this up. It was a miserable week for me trying to get the sermon together because I had to keep excluding all kinds of stuff. It's just over, once you see it, it's all over the place. The one that I thought was most helpful is from um, Philippians 1, verse, uh, starting in verse 9. So Philippians 1, starting in verse 9, he says, And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. So do you see where he starts with this? It's my prayer that your knowledge may abound more and more so that with knowledge and all discernment. He doesn't start there. He says, it's my prayer that your love may abound more and more. He starts us, he roots this whole thing in what do you love? I want you to love that which is good and right so that your knowledge will increase. So that you'll grow in these things, so that you'll understand them more. I want your heart to be so trained that you love what is good and right and honorable. Then you'll seek it out. So then once our hearts are trained in that direction, once, once our hearts begin to love the right things, we head in that direction. Didn't Jesus say that? Out of the heart proceeds the issues. Out of the heart, he says, look, you're not soiled. You're not made unclean by what you eat. It's what comes out of you. What bubbles up out of your heart and flows out of your mouth, that's what shows if you're clean or unclean. So that's the issue that we're looking at here is we need, if we're going to grow in grace, we need our hearts trained. We need to love what is good and right and appropriate. We need our passions disciplined. And then we'll seek after the other things. Now, you don't get the heart trained correctly if you don't have the right information. So I don't want to make it sound here like I'm saying, don't worry about doctrine. Forget all that stuff. You have to be thinking correctly about it. But it's not enough to simply be thinking correctly about it. You have to love the right things, too. How many of you have ever, the internet is great for this, get into discussion with somebody and they know the doctrine? They know the doctrine up and down. You start talking about something, and boy, they've got all the right answers. Boom, 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 boom. And they make you feel like an idiot. They, cond they are so condescending and so mean and so snipey. And you're like, oh, I'm going to go take a shower now. I feel like I've been dumped on. They have the doctrine. They've got the knowledge. But their heart is just bent in the wrong direction. Isn't that what Paul says in Corinthians? Knowledge puffs up. So you can't not have the knowledge, but what we have to be careful of is the knowledge should lead us 
to passions, to desires, to loves that go in the right direction. So that when we are online and discussing doctrine with somebody and they say something really off the wall, we don't take them off at the knees. We lovingly address them and say, oh, you know, have you thought through this? Because we love the person rather than love the doctrine. Okay? There's a subtle difference there. You don't get away with it, or you don't get away without it, but you can't let that be the most important thing. We have to disciple to the heart. So how do we do that? How do we train our passions? Well, that's kind of the point here is we need to train our heart in, in proper ways. That is done by God's grace. That's what trains us to love the right things. That's what moves our hearts in the right direction is God's grace. And the way that God does that is he's given us things. One of the things Smith said in his book was that virtues are patterns of morality. So you can get the right morals in your life and you can announce it is wrong to steal and be the biggest thief in the world. What you have to do is you have to take that moral of it's wrong to steal and put that into practice on a moment by moment basis, day by day. So what a virtue is, is a moral put into practice regularly over and over and over again. It's lived out. So at the beginning, that list of things that we were supposed to be like, those were virtues. Those were great Christian virtues. And we know them, but how do we then become them? We have to put them into practice and pattern them over and over in our lives. We work on, on doing those things routinely. Now, this is where you, we really have to be careful because it almost sounds like what I'm saying is work really hard, which I dissed really hard at the beginning. I am not saying work real hard and you'll get it. What I'm saying is there are certain things God has given us. In his word, he tells us to do these things as routine patterns in our life so that we will be conformed to the image of his son. Not so that he'll be happy with us. So for example, is, this is an example that I thought of. Let's say you go to your doctor and she says, you know, you need to lose a few, a few pounds. I think it would be really good for you if you just shaved a couple of pounds off. And you go, okay, doc, what do I got to do? And she says, well, what I'd like you to do is walk 15 minutes every day. Just, you know, after a meal, go out and take a walk. I'd like you to drink more water. I think that would help. And um, I'd like you to limit your portion size when you eat. And, and that should be, get you on a good start. And you go, got it, let's go. So a year later, you come back to your doctor for your checkup. And she says, how have you been? Oh, man, I have done everything. You Check out my Fitbit. Look how much walking I've done. And she looks and she goes, oh, my gosh, you, I said 15 minutes. You're blowing that away. That's great. And I got this app on my cell phone that tells me to drink water. and I can record how much I've had. Look how much water I'm drinking. And she's like, that's awesome. You did great. I'm so proud of you. And I cut my portion size in half. Man, I am so proud of you. You've really worked hard, she says. Let's get up on the scale and see how you did. He goes, I don't want to do that. I'm not interested. But look at my Fitbit. That's the idea that you can get if you go, I'm going to do something. I'm going to study my Bible every day. And that will make God love me more because I'm studying my Bible every day. That's look at my Fitbit. That's God, you've given me these things to do and I'm doing these things. Therefore, you must like me, right? There's a, a book called Disciples, um, Disciplines of Grace by Jerry Bridges. And in it, Jerry is talking about this young man who had just become a Christian and he was the most militant Bible study student ever. He would get up way early in the morning and do his Bible study every day, just never missed. Didn't matter what was going on, he never missed his Bible study. And so the, the man from Navigators who was discipling him said, why do you do that? 
And he says, well, because if I don't do my Bible study, God might not like me. Jerry interpreted that as this man is not being discipled by grace, but by legalism. So when we approach these patterns of God's grace in our life, I want us to make sure we're not thinking, if I do these things, God will like me. But rather, think, I want to be more like my big brother, Jesus Christ. God has adopted me into the family through him. I want to be like him. Therefore, I'm going to train my heart. So I will do X, Y, and Z. Not so that God will be impressed with me, but because he's given me these things to do so that it will train my heart to be towards him. I'm not going to go to the doctor and show her my Fitbit and refuse to get on the scale. I want to double check my scale every day and say, Lord, am I growing more like Christ? Is that where I'm heading? So please show me what I must do to do that. And so what we're going to do through November is we're going to look at a handful of different things and watch what God tells us to do. We have to have the knowledge, but then ask, what pattern does this build into my life? How does this train my heart to love what is right? Because if I, if I train my heart, then I know I'm going to be heading in the right direction. Um, so the first one we want to start on is the concept of worship. Why are you all here? What are you doing here? What are you here for? It's Sunday morning. You could have slept in. Well, you couldn't sleep in because it's daylight savings, and so, yeah, I was up at 5. But why do you come to church? What is, what is it that drives you to church every Sunday morning? Are you people nuts? Well, there's got to be something. Well, first of all, when we talk about patterns and we talk about worship and Sunday mornings, the first thing that comes to my mind is this concept of Sabbath. Now, in some circles, you mention Sabbath, and the first response is, there's no Christian Sabbath. Don't, don't even talk about it. Um, I like to nuance it a little bit. So let me talk briefly, because it is a pattern, isn't it? Six days you shall labor, and the seventh day you shall rest. It is a pattern that God built into his people's lives. So when it comes to the Sabbath, does the Christian have a Sabbath? In Exodus uh, 31-13, uh, God said, You are to speak to the people of Israel and say, Above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths, for it is a sign between you and me throughout your generation, that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. So it was for Israel, it was a thing that God had given them as a sign and the intent was to sanctify them. And what it meant by sanctify was to set them apart from the rest of the nations as holy. So some people look at that and say, well, it was a sign for Israel. It doesn't have anything to do with the Christian. So we don't have a Sabbath. Um, what I, here's, here's my approach. Um, the Sabbath, when did God institute the Sabbath? When you ask people, you'll get different answers. One is Exodus 20, Mount Sinai, Ten Commandments. That... That's, that's not actually correct. Because if you back up to Exodus chapter 16, when God first started sending the manna, he told them, six days you go out and pick up the manna, don't even go out on the seventh day because it ain't going to be there. Because it is a Sabbath. So the concept of Sabbath predates the Mosaic Covenant. It was before that. But even before, before that, what did God say he was making a Sabbath pattern on? Six days of creation, seventh day of rest. So if we want to say, when did the Sabbath begin? The seventh day. The universe is seven days old, and God says, there's a Sabbath. So what I think people have problems with, 
what Christians have issues with is in the New Testament, you'll read something like Colossians 2.16. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in question of food and drink or regard of a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. So it sounds like Paul is saying, Sabbath's over. Don't worry about it. What I think is happening is people are looking to the Sabbath and they're receiving the Sabbath from Moses, not from Christ. Does that make sense? When we look to the Sabbath and you hear the word Sabbath, we think Moses and here's the rules. And if anybody does this, you take them out and stone them and this and this and you won't lift this much. And, and we may even have a flavor of Pharisees in there saying you can only walk so far. You can't lift anything over your head. And we get these legalistic rules. What I want to say this morning is the Sabbath, the concept of Sabbath is there. Those rules have passed away. They were part of the old covenant, which Hebrew says is fading. And at the destruction of Jerusalem, it, the fade was over. It was done. We Christians don't live under those rules. So if I say Sabbath to you, I am not talking about, well, you better not go on out and eat dinner today. If you go out and, and, and eat in a restaurant, you're causing your, your manservant or your uh, uh, woman servant to, to work on the Sabbath, and that's wrong. That's getting the Sabbath from Moses. We're not going to get it from Moses. What we're going to get is the Sabbath from Jesus because it is a creation ordinance. God has told us there should be a pattern in your life of work and then rest, work and then rest, work and then rest. But in the new covenant, what day did Jesus rise on? Monday, uh, Sunday, right? That's the first day of the week. So under the old covenant, this is just an illustration. This is not a hard and fast rule. I just think this is a kind of a neat observation. In the old covenant, you labored six days and then you entered God's rest. And then you labored six days and you entered God's rest. In the new covenant, we start in a position of rest. We rest in Christ and then we labor six days. So it's just this subtle shift between the old covenant and the new that says we go from labor and then rest to rest in Christ and then we go and labor. So the one text I go to to say, yeah, there is a Sabbath for Christ's people, but it's Christ. It's not, it's not the, the, the rules of Moses is Hebrews 4. In Hebrews 3 and 4, um, the author of Hebrews is talking about rest, entering God's rest. And Joshua didn't give them God's rest because he said, don't harden your heart today. And then in 4.9, he says, so then there remains a Sabbath for the people of God. There remains a Sabbath. Now, if you're looking in your Bible right now and you've got an ESV, you're probably about to raise your hand and go, uh, Pastor Tim, it says Sabbath rest. Um, what's going on in, in Hebrews 4, uh, 3 and 4 is he's talking about entering God's rest. And that's one word. And then when he gets to 4.9, he says, there remains a sabbaton. There remains a Sabbath. He shifts the word. So when our translators put Sabbath rest, they're trying to stay in the flow of his thought, but they're inserting a word that in my mind is not warranted to be there. So the whole verse, verse nine and 10 says, so then there remains a Sabbath for the people of God. For whoever entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. So what that, what that means is, and this is where I hope to bring this back to, is why do you worship on Sunday morning? The Sabbath was a Saturday. Why are you here? Shouldn't we be over with the Seventh-day Adventists? Because we're not doing the Sabbath from Moses. We're doing it from Christ. 
Jesus fulfilled the Sabbath. On Saturday, he couldn't have rested anymore. He was dead. And then Sunday morning, he rose. And so the church has historically, from that first time, met on Sunday morning to remember Jesus' resurrection. That is when the church celebrates. We don't practice Old Covenant Sabbath. We practice New Covenant Sabbath. So I, if people say, whenever you talk about a Sabbath, they go, well, tell me, show me where in the Bible where it says it switched from Saturday to Sunday. And I can't. There's no command. There is nothing in there that says thou shalt because we're not getting the, the Sabbath from Moses. We're getting it from Christ. And so we rest in Christ. And on, Monday mor or on Sunday morning, we raise and we, we worship with him in his resurrection. So that's what's going on. That's what, um, what we're doing when we gather on a Sunday morning. He has given us a pattern that says you should be on a Sunday morning gathered with God's people to worship. And the one place, I gotta, I gotta touch on this because every time I bring it up, I get hit over the head with this and I, I always have to answer it. What about Romans 14? Romans 14 says explicitly, one person esteems one day as better than another while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. Surely that means that there is no Sabbath, that we could worship, folks, if you want to, let's take a congregational vote. You wanna worship on Thursday evenings? We'll do that. That's, isn't that what Romans 14 says? Every day is alike, so you set it apart in your mind. Well, you, sorry, you got to keep reading. Romans 14, 6 says, The one who observes the day observes it to the honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of God and gives thanks to God. Where did eats come in? If we're talking about what day of the, we're, we're, uh, what, what day of the week you worship on, where did the eat part come in? If you read Romans 14 in context, what he's talking about is, um, and you get this from the Didache, the, the ancient church document, it says the hypocrites fast on Monday and, Monday and Wednesday. The, the Pharisees do that. Don't do that. We won't be hypocrites. You fast on Tuesday and Thursday. That, that's a better thing. So that's what they're talking about, is it was an issue at the time on what days of the week you fasted on. That's what Paul's addressing, not worship. And what about the Colossians things? Don't let anybody be a judge over you. Well, yeah, I mean, amen. Nobody gets to judge you because of a Sabbath. The Sabbath is completed. And does, does let no one judge you sound like, oh, by the way, the Sabbath is, is gone, is done? This creation ordinance is fulfilled? It's not there. That's not what it means. What it means is don't let people judge you about new moons and feasts and Sabbaths. Not don't go to church on Sunday morning. So hopefully I've beaten that to death, <laughs> and you've got the idea that Sunday morning is important. It is a tradition in the church. It is an example in the church. There's pictures of it that happen in the New Testament. It is what the church has done. So let's continue to gather on Sunday morning and worship. And if you can't, if you have to work or something, you're not judged by that. But doesn't wisdom dictate if you can get away from that, try to get away from that? See if you can't work with your boss to get this Sunday morning off. That's the wisdom here. It's not Moses threatening to stone you. It's Jesus saying, come and rest. Come and be with me. So labor six days. We do five, but labor six days. Saturday, you know, mow your lawn or something. But Sunday, observe that as a day, as what the New Testament calls the Lord's Day. 
and set that aside. So what then do we do on Sunday mornings? God has given us this pattern of work and rest, and we observe it on a Sunday morning. So what are we supposed to do? Well, he has a few things in the Bible that, that um, illustrate what we should do. There is, I used to joke around about, there is nothing in 3 Timothy that says, here is the holy liturgy that you must follow. That would be nice, but I think what God was doing is he knows his church is going to go around the world. And so the sacred liturgy is going to look different in different places. In Rome, the Roman Catholic Church said, thus and shall it be. And everybody follows the same pattern, and that's why it was Latin for a long time. But the New Testament doesn't give us thus and shall it be. But it does give us some principles. And, and what should we do when we gather on a Sunday morning? So the first one is Hebrews 10.25 says, don't neglect the assembling yourself together, as some people are wont to do. So the first pattern that we get of what the local church should do is the local church should be meeting. That's the pattern. That's the, the, the idea of grace is let's not neglect meeting together. Let's spend time together. And it's not just because you're all groovy people, though you are, but I'm not here to, to, because you're groovy. I'm here because I want us to worship Jesus. So let's not neglect meeting together. The next one that I think of is Ephesians 5.19. He says, addressing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord in your heart. When we sang this morning, and I'm so grateful Ramey did this, we didn't plan this beforehand, there was a lot of times where the instruments just went silent. And what did you hear? You heard the saints ringing it out. We sang, and do you know who we were singing to? We were singing to each other, psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. We are gathered together. This is why you don't neglect coming together, is because we're singing to each other. We're singing doctrine to each other. We're singing praise to each other. We're singing to each other how great our God is. And there's something about human singing. When, when I was taking Greek and Hebrew, you had to memorize the alphabets, and I'm terrible at that stuff. And I didn't find out until after we took the Greek alphabet test that a bunch of folks, what they did was they made up a, a song in their, in their head to remember the, the alphabet. You know, like how we have A, B, C, D. They did it with, with the Greek alphabet. And that helped them remember there's something about singing that ingrains something in your heart. I could ask you about a song from the 1970s and you'd remember the lyrics, wouldn't you? But if I ask you about an episode of Six Million Dollar Man from the 1970s, would you remember the line that was said? No, because you're not as nerdy as I am and you didn't watch Six Million Dollar Man back then, but it wasn't sung to you. There's something about singing that ingrains that into us. And so God has commanded us, sing. So what do we do on, on Sunday morning? We get together and we sing. The church has always done this. It's because this is that pattern that God has built into his church saying, sing to each other, psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, remind each other of truth in this glorious way that I built you to resonate with. So sing to each other. We're supposed to celebrate the Lord's Supper regularly. We're going to do that this morning. Purely accidental. I, otherwise, I would have said, I'll do the Lord's Supper. But we, we're, we're commanded to celebrate the Lord's Supper. In 1 Corinthians 11.20, Paul says, when you come together... Is it not, oh, it is not for the Lord's Supper that you eat when you come together. He's telling the Corinthians, you gather and you have this love feast and he complains to them. He says, but you're not doing it. So the idea there, that's the negative, the flip that back to its positive side. When you come together, celebrate the Lord's Supper. 
That's a pattern that we do regularly in our worship. Some churches do it every week, some do it once a month, some do it once a quarter, some do it once a year. But it's part of this routine pattern in us. And every time we celebrate the Lord's Supper, what do we do? We proclaim his death until he comes. We remind ourselves again, our Savior has died and is coming again. It's built in. It's part of the pattern of what we do. We're supposed to baptize believers. That's one of the things that God has given us. Now, that's not really a pattern. It happens once in an individual's life. But do we go off and hide off and just take the baptizer and the baptizee and go, you know, go to the cestins and make sure nobody can see? What do we do when we do a baptism? We have food. We gather together. We are all around that pool. When that person goes under the water and comes back up, we are all there. We don't neglect the gathering together. We celebrate this pattern in church life on a regular basis. You will only be baptized once. The church will baptize repeatedly because that's what we were told to do. We were said, told, make disciples, baptize them, teach them. That's, that was our commission. So listen, I love the way that our statement of faith addresses this issue of the Lord's Supper and baptism. So in our statement of faith, um, article number seven, it says, the Lord Jesus, Jesus mandated two ordinances, baptism and the Lord's Supper, which visibly and tangibly express the gospel. Though they are not the means of salvation, we sell, when celebrated by the church in genuine faith, these ordinances confirm and nourish the believer. So this is why we do this, is this is that pattern that God has built into our lives to confirm and to nourish you. I think the statement says it extraordinarily well. I'm, I'm very proud of him for putting it in there. So the other thing that we do is, what did Ron do this morning? Ron came up here and he read scripture at you. Uh, is that just because we don't think you have a Bible? We're, com we're complying with what the scriptures say. Timothy, when he's, or uh, Paul, when he's writing to Timothy, he's telling him how to keep things going. And he says, until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of scripture, to exhortation and to teaching. So why do we read scripture? Because that's what God wants us to, he wants us to hear his words over and over and over again in our worship, together as a family. So these are the things that he has called us to do. There's another one that came up, um, devote yourselves to the apostles' teaching. That's from Acts 2.42. The, the early church, they had the, the biggest baptismal service I have ever heard of. They baptized over 3,000 people. And then what comes after that is they lived together and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. So I, I've said this, I think I said this at the end of Luke, we don't have apostles here. I am not an apostle, capital A, apostle. So how do we devote ourselves to the apostles' teaching? That's called the New Testament. <laughs> That's called the Bible. So as we read our Bible in light of what the New Testament tells us, we are devoting ourselves to the apostles' teaching. That's why preaching has always been a central part of the church. It got eclipsed in the Middle Ages. It was recovered in the Reformation, and it is a prominent feature within evangelicalism. Preaching is a means of God's grace to you. It's a way that it's a pattern of God's grace in your life is to have somebody stand up and explain Scripture to you so that your heart will be trained in the right direction. What about tithing? 
we do that every Sunday. We pass a basket. Um, that, this is another one of those ones that comes up and people say, well, why do you do that? Is, is it in the Bible? It doesn't say in the New Testament that you should tithe. Um, there's some hints. 1 Corinthians 16.2, uh, Paul says, Now, on the first day of the week, each of you is to put aside something and store it up as he may prosper so that there will be no collecting when I come. Why the first day of the week? Because that's when the church got together. It was on the first day of the week. So what he says is, each of you give according to what you can. We're not going to set a, a numerical value that you have to give. But give according to what, how God prospers you. Give it and then store it up so when I come, I don't have to come and just browbeat everybody. It becomes a regular pattern within the church. Now the question is, well, that was just going to Jerusalem, so we don't have to do that, right? Well, there's hints in other places that the church had some reservoir funds. For example... First uh, Timothy 5.9, Paul gives Timothy the advice. He says, let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband. Be enrolled in what? Let a widow be enrolled in something. They had a list of eligible widows within the church. They said, it, it, because widowhood was a real issue in the first century. It was a bad place to be. So if you had a real widow who didn't have a family to fall back on, let her be enrolled, written into the scroll, list of names. Why? Um, just so they know who they are. No. In, in a few more verses, he says, uh, let the elders who rule be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. That honor, it sounds like you guys, you know, you may respect Dan Fordham, or Dan Stromberg, rather, because he's an elder, but you have to respect me double amount, because I'm, I'm, you know, or Dan and I do a lot of preaching and teaching, so we're, we're, that's not what he's talking about. When he says honor, just previously, when he talked about those widows who were enrolled, they receive honor. And it wasn't just respect, it was some amount of money to support them. So whatever you're giving to your, your widows on your list, Take that number and double it and give it to the elders who are dedicated to preaching and teaching. Where did they get that money? Well, they got that money because on the first day of the week, they set it aside. They pooled it together. They pooled their resources. So actually tithing is one of those patterns of God's grace. Because every week when that basket goes by you and you're able to put something in it, every week on a weekly basis, you're saying, God, I'm giving back part of what you've given me. You have given me so much, and I'm giving a portion back so that your work can go forward. That is training your heart to say, I'm not so attached to that checkbook that I can't give portions of it away. Instead, I'm more attached to what's going on with God. And so if you have a heartburn with the word tithe, God bless you. The tithe is, is just a, a general term that we use. And so don't don't think that you're bound to give 10% of your income. If you can give more, give more. As the Lord has prospered you, give what you can give. And in the surprising part is in doing it, it's not, look at my Fitbit, look at my checkbook. You're saying to God, Lord, I want my heart trained away from the stuff and more towards you, so I'm giving this portion back to you. It's a pattern of God's grace, and it builds us up. So the other part of what I ask Ron to read is uh, Romans 12. So let's see if this doesn't tie this all back together for us. 
Paul says in Romans 12, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world. Sorry, excuse me. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God and what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, by the unmerited favor that has been bestowed on me, I say to everyone among you, don't think more highly of yourselves than you ought. Be humble. But to think with sober judgments, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. So I appeal to you. When you appeal to somebody, what are you doing? Are you, you're tugging on their heartstrings. You're saying, please. So when, when I ask you, if I come to you and I say, would you do me a favor? Am I asking you, uh, or am I trying to force you into something? I've got a gun to your head and I say, hey, would you do me a favor? That is rhetorical. That is, is just a ridiculous question. But if I come to you and say, hey, will you do me a favor? What I'm saying is, out of the goodness of your heart, out of our, our bond of friendship, out of your positive disposition to me, would you do me this thing for me, please? So that's what Paul says, is I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, I'm not trying to browbeat you into this. I'm, I'm begging you, because your heart is inclined in the right direction, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. So again, how are you doing? Is your body a living sacrifice? Ouch. Um, I'd like it to be. Hopefully we're growing in that. Holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship? So when we gather to worship, and we do those things, what we're doing is we're training ourselves to want to offer our bodies as a living sacrifice. We're reminded, I need to be together with other people who think like this, who, who have stories about God's grace. I need to eat the Lord's Supper on a regular basis because it reminds me Jesus died for me and he's coming back for me. And a lot of these things, they happen in, in almost subliminal ways. You don't even notice that, that you're thinking in these terms. But I'll tell you what, he talks about being conformed, um, don't be conformed to this world. Um, Smith in his book said that the, there are liturgies in our life and he didn't mean the worship service and the structure, how the worship service went. He talked about liturgies as in these things, these patterns that come up in our lives. And he did this brilliant analysis of going to the mall. His, his son, he said, I knew I had achieved a parenthood goal when my son came and said, hey, would you take me to the temple? And what he meant was, would you take me to the mall? And so he goes through the mall and he says, what are the liturgies the mall is offering you? What are the absolution that they're extending to you? They never use words, they use pictures. They use mannequins who are really super slim, holding fancy looking clothes saying, you can be cool like this too, even though you never can. And you can't leave the temple until you have made your, your oblation, you, haven't, you have offered your money. And then you receive the promised cool and you go. So that's exactly what he's, what he's riffing on here is what Paul says is don't be conformed to the world. We are called to live in the world. We are called to work in the world. We're called to minister in the world. But we're told and warned, don't be conformed to the world. The liturgies of the world, the patterns of the world are going to tell you, they whisper constantly in non-words, there's no God. 
this is it. You have to have more. If you buy this, you'll be happy. Oh, you bought that last year? You won't be happy. Now buy this and you'll be happy. The world is constantly telling you this, preaching this, this liturgy to you over and over again. And what Paul says is, don't be conformed to that. Make sure your heart is bent in the right direction. So that's why we have worship every week. Not once a month, not once a quarter, not once a year. We gather every week because you need to hear again the sacred liturgy. Jesus died for you. He rose again. He's coming again. You need to see it, experience it, bathe in it. Let it wash over you over and over again so that you drink that in, so your heart then is trained and bent in the right direction. And isn't that what God promised? In Deuteronomy 36, he says, I am going to circumcise your heart. He didn't say, I'm going to circumcise your mind. Ezekiel talks about being washed with the Holy Spirit and given a new heart. Jeremiah 31 promises, I am going to put the law on your heart and you will be my people. The new covenant is you are given a new heart. So when we think about being better disciples, we need to be training not just our minds. We need to be training our passions, our desires, our hearts. What do you love? What do you worship? What do you seek? Because wherever your heart is, that's where you're going to go. So thank you for coming to worship this morning. It's good for all of us. It's good for me, not just to have a lot of faces out there, but to hear and be with you all. It's good for you to be with each other. Don't neglect the, the gathering together in worship. Why? Because it's good for you. And it will train you to love God. So the rest of the month, we'll look at other disciplines, other things that God's given us, and we'll look for those patterns. How is, how is this thing God has given us training me to love what is right and good? Let's pray. Lord, we, we are grateful that you have circumcised our heart. Lord, that you have turned our heart from stone to flesh, that you have written your law on our heart, that we may not just obey the rule, but we would love the rule. Lord, would you train us through your liturgies, through your patterns, through your routine works that you do in our lives. Lord, would you train our hearts to want you more. And Lord, I just pray for all of us that we would seek worship every Sunday, not in a legalistic, check my Fitbit way, but Lord, would you train us to want worship on Sunday so that we are not conformed to the world, but we are conformed to the image of your Son which is our heart, our desire, what we want. It's what you predestined us for. So accomplish those things, we pray. Accomplish them through the Lord's Supper, which we're about to receive. Accomplish them through baptisms, which we observe, through singing, through prayer, through public reading of Scripture, and through preaching of your word. We ask all of this in Christ's name. Amen.